So we're going to be looking at Exodus 19, 1 through 20, the whole ch- or actually, uh, sorry, Exodus 19, the whole chapter, ending in uh, 22, and then also in chapter 20, verses 18 and 21. So that's what we're going to be reading in just a minute. But first, we'll do it a little bit uh, different order tonight. I want to introduce our, our series. We're going to be studying the semester through the Ten Commandments, okay? And I don't know what your reaction is to that. Uh, you might be thinking that, uh, you might be excited about that. You want to hear about the rules uh, so that you can work hard to follow them. Or you might be scared of that, don't want any part of uh, you know, learning more about God's rules. You might think that that's sort of an archaic and silly thing to talk about. But wherever you are on that uh, spectrum, um, we at least need to take a minute and ask the question, so why are we going to study through the Ten Commandments? Why would we study them? And ultimately the answer is that we're going to study the Ten Commandments because we want to experience God. We want to experience experience God, who He is, what He's like. And so that's our plan for the semester. And in in, in so doing, I believe that we're also going to find out that we're uh, we're going to learn a lot about ourselves as well. In fact, the title of our series, if you get the text, you saw that The title of our series is Experiencing the Real God and the Real You. In fact, I think that you can think about the Ten Commandments sort of like a... uh, It sort of functions as a window and a mirror. It's going to function like a window to God's character. That we're going to be able to look through as we study through these commandments and see what God is really like. If you think about it, if you study, uh, if you, the more you get to know somebody and you learn sort of their rules, right, how, they, um, how, how to best relate to them, you really get to know them, right? And so the Ten Commandments are going to serve sort of as a window to see God himself and see his character. But it's also going to operate, uh, we're going to see throughout the semester, like a mirror for ourselves, uh, it's going to, as we look and study God's law more and more and get to the depths of it, as we begin to understand him and therefore his law and in a sense measure ourselves against it, it's going to operate like a mirror in which we're able to see ourselves more clearly. And so that's basically what we're going to do for the semester. And one of the things that you're going to find, I believe, if you stick with us, and that we're, we're vividly going to see in this passage, I believe, you're going to see something very interesting that you're going to see sort of this duality, right? That God is, on the one hand, this awesome, terrifying, overwhelming being. To come in, that when you come into his presence, it's a, It's a terrifying thing. And the same is true of the law in many ways. And yet at the same time, God and his law, I think you'll find, are something that's very, at the same time, very inviting. Something that's attractive to us. Something that seems to be very life-giving. Seems to be both. And so with that in mind, I want to read our... uh, Actually, let me give you this, uh, this illustration. Uh, one morning when we were in seminary, when I was in seminary in Jackson, Amy and I living in Jackson, 
woke up before the sun came up uh, to some sirens, to a lot of sirens in our neighborhood. And so we went outside, and as soon as you opened the door, you could see sort of this glow a couple of blocks away, and you could see the smoke. You remember this? And we walked uh, about a block or so over, and this house, this big two-story house, was fully engaged, right? I think that's what the firemen say. Fully engaged, completely on fire. The whole thing, right? Not just hope we can put it out. It was so on fire that they were spraying down the houses next to it, right? We're not going to save this one. We're just going to try to save the other ones. So Amy and I are standing there in front of this just enormous fire. I don't know if you've ever seen anything like that, but it's, it's a very powerful experience. And it, it's sort of like what we're saying here. That's why I want to use it as an illustration. That on the one hand, it's this, it's this in a sense, it's sad for these people, right? But in a sense, it's this sort of beautiful, mesmerizing thing that you want to get, you want to get closer and closer and you just want to watch it. You, I mean, you almost want to sort of touch it. But at the same time, from hundreds of feet away, you can feel, you can feel the heat. And you know that you don't want to be anywhere near this thing. It was both at the same time. Maybe you've had an experience like that. And I think, again, in, in some ways, that that's what I want you to see in this passage and what we'll see throughout the semester. Is that God, God is both. So let's give our attention uh, to God's word here in Exodus 19 and then a little bit in 20. It's a little bit longer than we usually read, but uh, I, I think you'll appreciate it. It says, on the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings 
and a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then the rest of chapter 20 is God giving the Ten Commandments, and then we pick up in 18. And it says, Now when all the people saw the thunder, and the flashes of lightnings, and the sound of the trumpet, and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. The grass withers and the flowers fade away, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray before we consider it further tonight. Heavenly Father, we pray to you, the very same God that we just read about, We pray and we ask that as the very same God who descended in this awesome way and gave us the law, that you will be with us here tonight and that you will change us, that you'll teach us your word, that that we will experience you. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I, I think you have to see just on just the reading of that passage that that is quite a scene. Right? That is powerful, to say the least. And so tonight, as we begin our study, as we just sort of do an introduction to the Ten Commandments, I want you to see two main things that we're going to sort of frame up this intro by. Two things from this passage about God and about His law. And they are these. Number one, we're going to see that God is holy. And number two, we're going to see that God is gracious. So, fairly simple. So first, God is holy. As you read that passage, I think that maybe more than anything else, you're struck with just how weighty of an experience that was. Just how powerful and and overwhelming, right? Terrifying, really. And I think that you can sum the whole thing up by saying this. The Israelites, and us reading it, the Israelites experience the fact that God is holy. That he is holy, holy, holy. Right? What does holy mean? Holy simply means that he is 
other, that he's set apart, that he is that he's different, right? And that's in full display here. God tells the people that, that's why we sort of read through all that. He tells the people that I'm going to meet with you and you need to be prepared for it, right? That's all the consecrating that's going on. It's a big deal to come into the presence of God and you need to be ready for it. Because what you're going to experience is going to overwhelm you. It's going to blow you away. Right, just, just to recap what we read. The mountain is shaking. It said the whole mountain is shaking. It's on fire all over it. There's a thick cloud that has descended on it. And there's this trumpet that's blaring And all it's doing is steadily getting louder and louder. So you can imagine that they're rightly afraid of what they're encountering. It's a terrifying scene. right? They're they're coming face to face with the presence of God. And they are are recognizing, "We we don't belong here. You are not like, you're on a whole different plane than us. And, And... we don't, we don't belong here. We, we're undone, right? I thought about the story when uh, a few summers when I was in college, I got to work on this ranch in Montana, which was a lot of fun. And Amy and I did it one uh, summer after we were married. And So one of the first summers that I was there, we had this lady come in. Uh, she was uh, Korean, from Korea, uh, spoke very limited English, and she wanted to go on a hike. And so we, uh, me and my friend told her about this hike, left right out the ranch, and so we sent her on this hike. And, you know, good luck, have fun. And so we see her the next day. Uh, we were toting her luggage to the, to the bus, and I see that it's her. And I said, hey, how was the hike? And she said, oh, uh, very scary. And I said, oh, well, why was it scary? And she said, saw big bear. So this is in Montana, this is in grizzly bear country, right? And I said, you saw a bear? Uh, how, how far... Where was it? How far were you from it? So we are standing, my friend Parker and I are standing about six or seven feet from this lady. She steps towards us to about two feet. She could touch me and she says, um, this far. And I said, what, what, like I, my mouth is just like this, this woman almost died. Okay. I'm dead serious. And I said, what happened? And she said, it stand up. I'll spare you the accent. Stands up, raises its arm, and goes, raw. So I break out. It still gives me chills, okay? Because when, when a grizzly bear, I read a fair amount about grizzly bears. You go hiking and camping in grizzly bear country, you ought to read up, right? When a grizzly bear stands up and does that, you know, it makes itself look as big as it can, the, the deadliest predator on the earth, arguably. When it stands up and roars like that, basically it's saying, if this situation doesn't change, you're about two seconds from dying, like, last, last warning. And so I said, what, uh, what, what did you, because she's here, right? What did you do? And she said, I just went, and she put her head down in her hands, and she said, I just went, oh. <laughs> and then she started backing away about like an inch at a time. Okay. It's sort of funny. <laughs> And I, I could not be more serious. She almost died. 
I mean, she came within inches of dying, okay? I mean, people literally have died in that canyon from grizzly bear attacks. I want you to imagine for just a second that, oh, it gives me chills to think about how terrifying that would be. Think, I mean, what, it's probably 10 feet tall when it stands up like that. It's got three, four-inch razors of claws. I mean, it'll kill you. That's like the fourth time I've snapped in a sermon. Sorry. It'll kill you like that. My wife warned me about that. So what do you do when you, you can... She could probably smell its breath. And apparently they, it just always smells like death because they eat things like that. I mean it. So can you imagine how terrifying it would be, that feeling of... That's it. That's it. I got nothing, right? There's nothing you can do. You can't fight it. You can't... It's just... You're done. You got nothing. All right, that feeling, I want to suggest to you, is just this little taste of what coming into the presence of the God of the universe is like. Right? It's what the Israelites experience here very vividly in this passage. That feeling of, I got, <laughs> if, if this is what you really are in all of your glory and all of your holiness, I'm, I'm done. I can't, do, I can't do anything. So what does that mean for us as we study the Ten Commandments? Well, like we said earlier, the law is going to act like a window into the character of God. And what we're seeing, right, we see in this passage that God is holy. He's perfect in a way in which it's hard to even conceive of. And so therefore, His law is the exact same way. His law is perfect. And so as we read and study His law, it's going to work like a mirror, like I said earlier. So the more that we see what His law, the more we see how perfect it really is, and what it really requires of us, right? Because we're supposed to be like Him. The more that we see that <laughs> overwhelmed by His holiness and what He requires, the more that we're going to see ourselves and see how not holy we are. The more that, the more that we plumb the depths of it, the more we're going to see how uh, overwhelming it is to us. And we're going to come undone. I'm going to say it like this. Studying through the Ten Commandments this semester, in some sense, it will wreck your semester. If you really engage in this study and study through the Ten Commandments, it's going to wreck your semester. And I I actually have been praying that it will do that in one sense. Because it has to, right? One theologian put it like this, that the law was not meant to wound you. It was meant to kill you. Read Galatians 3 sometime. That's, what, that's essentially Paul's whole point. So did you hear that? One of the main functions of the law, what it is supposed to do, it's supposed to expose us. As we measure ourselves against it, it is supposed to leave us broken. It's supposed to leave us in that grizzly bear in your face. I, I can't do anything in relation to this. It's supposed to do that. Because it's supposed to show us that we can't do it on our own. 
And I think this is a good time to say this, that one of the things that we have to keep in mind as we study the Ten Commandments is that it's really about our hearts. Okay, and, and that's where it will, the Ten Commandments and studying them will really bury you. Because the, they're fundamentally about our hearts, not about our, our external actions. Right, so the more that you begin to see that God really is pure and holy in heart, so to speak, and that he wants our hearts to be that way and not just our actions, the more you begin to see that that image in that mirror is really ugly. I mean, just, when you begin to get into your motivations about why you do stuff, you begin to pull that thread about your desire, what, what you want, and not just your actions, you're going to see more and more of what a mess you are. And I'm going to see more and more of what a mess I am. Right? When Jesus comes along in the New Testament and he teaches us that, look, the commandment about murder is fundamentally about hating people and thinking bad thoughts about people in your heart. And when he comes along and he says that whole adultery command, it's really fundamentally about your sexual desires and thoughts, not just your actions. Right? you're going to begin to realize that the problem goes so much deeper down than maybe you've ever seen before. And there's nothing you can do about it. But the good news is that that is exactly where God wants you to be. That's exactly where God wants you to be because it's only there that you'll begin to realize and long for a Savior. When you realize you can't do it. So we see that God is holy, right? Very holy, and in in light of that, we're undone. But I want you to see also that at the same time that this passage even brings out that God is very gracious. We're going to look at that in two ways. Um, But God is gracious. A couple of different aspects. First aspect is that God saves his people. right? Did you catch that? It pops up at least twice in chapter 19, verses 4 and 5. And then in uh, chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, God basically reminds his people of the very context in which they are in right then. God basically says, look, before you meet with me, and as I, as I meet with you and bring you this law, I want you to remember where we are, right? And how we got here. And he basically says, we're here, you're here, Because I saved you. Because I love you. I bore you out of Egypt on eagles' wings. Right? If you, whether you're familiar or not with the story, go back and read it. Right? They, all the plagues and all that. And then when they left Egypt, Egypt gave them all their stuff. They said, yeah, you're free to go. You're not our slaves anymore. And here, take all our stuff. Right? It's amazing. So he basically says, look. I'm going to give you the law, but this is the main point of this sermon tonight, and it's the main point in some sense of the whole semester. The very context of the giving of the law is grace. You see that? In other words, it's not, it's not that God said, okay, listen, here's the deal. There are a lot of people out there, and I decided to pick you, and... Here's how it's going to work. I'll save you from Egypt. I'll take you out of slavery. And all you have to do is keep these ten rules, right? Only ten. And if you keep these rules, I'll do my part. I'll pull you out. No. It's exactly the opposite, right? He says, 
you were, you were done. You were slaves to Egypt. I saved you. Right? It's, and now, here's the law. Right? It's grace. The, law, the whole context of God giving His commandments is that He's already saved them. So we can say it like this. that How do we apply that? It means that our, our obedience to God's law is not the basis of our relationship with Him. And that, friends, is enormous. Right? In some sense, that is the heart of the gospel. That to have a relationship with God fundamentally is not based on your performance and how well you do. Right? You've probably heard me say it several times that the order in Christianity is everything. We don't follow the law of God to get God to love us. Right? The law can't save us. We can't save ourselves by the law. But on this side of the cross... Right, we see what Jesus has done. That God offers and he brings about a freedom. And it's not just from physical slavery right, from Egypt like these folks. That was in some sense just this living illustration of what he's ultimately come to do, which is to deliver us from ourselves, from our sin. We're enslaved to ourselves. And what we see is that even though we are terrible people, that God has loved us in such a way that He sent His Son to stand in our place. And that He saves us from, the, rat, from, the, uh, from the, the consequence of the law entirely. He took our punishment and He gave us His righteousness. And that's the good news, right? In fact, maybe you've heard me say this before, the gospel is good news, not a good plan. Right? It's not a good plan for salvation. That's some sort of works-based righteousness. Here's what you need to do. Here are the rules. Keep them. Then God will love you. That's a plan. The gospel is good news. Here's what Jesus has done. And you get to rest in it. Take it. Quick application of that. What does that mean? Well, if and since that's true, that's going to change how you and I approach the law. It's going to change our whole motivation to try to keep the law. Right? If we've really been saved by grace, if God says, I love you just because I love you, and I've saved you in Jesus, then that's going to change the, the whole reason that we desire to keep His law. It goes from being that of fear, right, or trying to earn God's love, to that of, of gratitude, of, of love. I want to keep God's law more and more. We're freed up to try to keep it. I'll give you a good illustration, I think, of that. Uh, in the mid-1800s, there was a, a minister, uh, last name Hogue, don't know his first name, was in Richmond, Virginia. And Dr. Hogue uh, got married, and his wife uh, came with this dowry, I guess, of seven slaves. And as soon as those slaves became his, he freed them immediately. Now, this is obviously before slavery has been abolished. Slavery is in full effect. As soon as he gets those slaves, he says, you're free. Well, the next morning, as the story goes, he wakes up and six of them are still there. And he says, you, you, you're, you're free to go. Like, you, you really can. Like, I'm in it. You're free. And one of them said, 
if that's really true, if I really am free to go anywhere that I want to, then I want to stay right here and I want to clean your barns and take care of your horses and do whatever you want me to do. I'll do whatever it takes to stay as close as I can to the person that treated me with such integrity that they would free me like that. You see what I mean? You get the point, right? Okay, I'm free to go. If I can go anywhere, I'm going to stay with somebody like that. That's a great illustration of what grace, right? If and since the gospel is true, how we should relate to the law, how we get to relate to the law, that it's something that we get to keep because he loves us, because he's freed us. All right, the second way that we see God's gracious uh, in this passage, he saves us. He saves his people from Egypt. He saves us in Christ. But he also speaks to his people and he speaks to us. And look, I love to talk about how the Ten Commandments tell us about um, how, how best to love God, right? They are uh, basically God saying, look, this is how best to relate to me, right? Um, if you want to love me, right? We want to love God now. Here's how to do it. What a gracious thing that he tells us that. We don't have time to get into all that. Um, the, I want to highlight this one. What a gracious thing it is. Think about this. What a gracious thing it is that God... That God tells us, He gives us uh, His law that shows us how we best operate. Right? If He, if and since He's the creator of us, He's our maker, He knows how you and I best would uh, operate in this life. And He tells us, and and it's these commandments. I guess you could say, in some sense, the law is going to operate like a window again, not only to the uh, character of God, but also to the, the potential of what you and I were built for. This is how you and I were built to live. You can think about it like the, it's like the owner's manual of life, right? You, you get a car, and it comes with an owner's manual, right? And... Uh, you know, it says things like, you need to change your oil every 3,000 miles. You need to, you know, put gas in it. So that things like that, right? It tells you how best to operate your car. And so who in their right mind, you, know, you would never say anything like, that is so arrogant of those Honda people to tell me that every 3,000 miles I need to change my oil. I will change my oil whenever I want to, right? That's kind of crazy, right? Why? Because they know. They know. They know how best to operate it. Um, you, get the, you get the picture, right? That, that God is gracious enough to tell us this is how you were built to, to experience true life. And now that might be sort of a silly example, but, but we really do that stuff all the time, right? We want to find life on our terms, right? I want to deal with sexuality the way I want to deal with it, thank you very much. I'll, I'll figure that out on my terms. I'll handle money the way I want to handle money. I don't appreciate God or anybody else coming in and telling me how to deal with stuff. I'll handle uh, who's in charge and authority and what's right and what's wrong. I'll handle that myself. I don't want somebody else telling me that. But what I want you to see is that to follow the manual, so to speak. And now look, again, not to earn God's love. right? You can't. Not to be the right kind of person and therefore, you know, get in. You can't. 
But with that in mind, with the gospel in mind, if you want to experience life to the fullest, then, then the law is how we do it. A friend of mine is doing this study, um, and he's calling his series The Beautiful Life. And he's kind of taking that approach. Right? We tend to think, I'll give you one last illustration, and then we'll close. We tend, I think, a lot of times to think about the law like it's a fence around an amusement park. Right? And that, that amusement park, the fun in the middle is sin, right? what we want to do. And we tend to think about the law as that fence around it, and it's keeping us out of the fun. Right? And we just sort of get to put, you know, peek over the top and like, oh, that'd be nice. But what if, what if the law is actually a fence around a bottomless pit? And then it's not God trying to keep us out of the fun. It's God trying to keep us out of our utter destruction. Because that's what it is. All right, so let's end with this thought. So we begin by saying, and sort of carry this theme throughout, right? That, that God seems to be both. He seems to be this holy, unapproachable, terrifying, overwhelming thing, and so does his law. And yet at the same time, it seems, he seems to be this very attractive, gracious, inviting, life-giving thing that I need. How can it be both? How can it be both? And the answer is that they can only come together in Jesus. The only way both can be true, and we still survive, is because of Jesus Christ. And we get a hint here in this passage. You see that Moses was a mediator, right? The very end of this passage is this this amazing scene. I had a friend, listened to a friend preach this, and he said this would make an amazing shot in the movie. Because if you notice, the people of Israel at first were right up next to the mountain. And then at some point, right, amidst all the terror, they end up a long way away. And Moses comes to them, and they say, they basically say, look, all right, here's how we want to do this. You go talk to him. We're not going anywhere near him. You go talk, come back, tell us what he says. And Moses says, no, it's okay. You You don't have to fear and they say, you, you go. And so what, you know, picture this shot of, in the movie of, you've got all these, I don't know, a million people, however far away from this mountain, and Moses, one man, he turns and he starts walking, right? And he gets further and further, heading into this like thick darkness. Going f- for all of those people, he says, okay, I'll go. Right? He, he's a mediator. But is Moses the hero of the story? Well, no. Because Moses is a mediator, but he's not the mediator. Get this. This is amazing. Okay? So you flash forward several hundred years to another mountain. What we call the Mount of Transfiguration. Right? You've got Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, his sort of best friends, takes them up on a mountain. You have... Um, you have God show up with smoke, the voice of God, and he, uh, God reveals his glory just like this, right? There's all this bright light. Jesus sort of transforms and just shines so that you see his glory. And they're overwhelmed by this cloud. And who shows up? Moses and Elijah. And get this. Luke tells us this. In verse, uh, Luke 9, verse 31, it says that they, Moses and Elijah, spoke of his, Jesus's, spoke of his 
exodus. Spoke of his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Okay. I mean, do you catch? Like, that's amazing, right? Moses shows up. And he wants to talk to Jesus about Jesus' exodus. This, everything that we see here in Exodus 19, 20, it's just this... It's this pointer to what Jesus is going to do. That He's going to show up, embody, be the the true holiness of God. And He's going to be the mediator for the people, for us. He's going to turn and He's going to walk into the darkness. The real darkness for us. He's going to come, He came, and took on the punishment that you and I deserve He came and he took the thunder and he took the smoke. He took that, right? The grizzly bear, you know, death. He took it so that you and I don't have to. And he took his life that he lived every second of always following this law from his heart. And he gives it, he offers to give it to you. And he offers to give it to you for free. And that's the good news. That's the good news. It's free to you. And I hope that you take it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much. It almost feels trite to say thank you, but we, what else can we say? We love you, thank you, that you would be our mediator so that we actually might be able to experience the presence of God. Help us this semester to walk through this law and help it to crush us. And Lord Jesus, please heal us back. Bind us together in your love and your grace. We ask it in your name, amen.